Ezekiel. And then let's pray, and we will jump in. Lord, thank you for tonight again, and for the privilege to gather as a body of Christ on days like today, where we can uh, be reminded of what Jesus has done for us, and especially as we think about that relating to our suffering, and how he knows um, every form of suffering. We're thankful now that we can look at your word and we can see your faithfulness to the nation of Israel and your covenant promises and promises of the new covenant, which we get to look at tonight. And pray again that you'd help us to uh, see wonderful things from your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we've got um, the book of Ezekiel we're going to attack tonight. Um, I've got 19 pages of notes, which is a lot. So we're not going to get, I don't, I, we might get all the way through it. I don't think so. There's, there's a lot of things in Ezekiel, especially as we get towards the end uh, with the vision of the new temple and things like that. Uh, I want to flesh out more because there's a lot of, um, for my, my own self. So I spent some time this last week. So what we might do is in a week or two after we get done with Isaiah is just go back through the prophets. I just want to summarize some things that I didn't get to spend as much time on. I don't know. We'll see what happens. We'll just jump in tonight and see how far we get and, and uh, do that. And again, I'll give you the reminder that just like with Matthew, we're trying to be better readers of the gospel of Matthew. With the Old Testament survey, we're trying to be better readers of the Old Testament. And so if you get one or two things, that's, then, maybe, then maybe you can read it a little bit better, understand the context a little bit better, and that'll be somewhat, somewhat more successful. Um, because it, it's somewhat like a fire hose of information because I have 19 pages of notes that I want to communicate in an hour, and that's not easy to do. So, Ezekiel, uh, an interesting book and a challenging book. Who's read through Ezekiel lately? Anything stand out to you? Yeah, beside the first chapter, you're like, what is this vision of whirling wheels? And yeah, it, it is, I think it's probably one of the more challenging books in the Old Testament. Um, so let's, let's just set it up a little bit by, by talking about, again, some of the context and who Ezekiel was, and then we'll work our way through the outline. Um, Ezekiel is known as the prophet of visions for good reason, right? It is a book filled with visions. Remember Jeremiah, we said, was the weeping prophet because of his message of judgment he delivered and the persecution he suffered uh, because of that. So Ezekiel is known often as the prophet of visions, um, a vision uh, was, well, this is a definition from, from Jensen that says, a vision in, in Bible days was a miraculous experience of a man of God on a special occasion whereby God revealed truth to him in some pictorial and, and audible form. So um, as we see that with Ezekiel, the Lord allows him to see things and experience things. He's taken to places uh, where he sees these things going on. Uh, we see in chapter 1, verse 3, he comes from a priest, priestly heritage. He's the son of Buzzy, or Boozy, however you want to say that. Um, he is taken to Babylon when he's about 18 years old, perhaps. Um, now, when we get to, to Daniel again, you'll remember that Daniel and Ezekiel would be contemporaries of each other, and Jeremiah, that we looked at last week, would also be a contemporary of Ezekiel. If you have your little uh, chart deal there, you can kind of see the overlap between Jeremiah's ministry and Ezekiel's ministry. Now, the key difference, of course, is that Jeremiah, where was he ministering primarily? In Judah, right. He's, he's back in the land. Ezekiel is out of the land. He's in Babylon the entire time, okay? And so that's, again, where we just want to set the historical context that we're dealing with. We're at the end of the kingdom. Uh, Israel has already been carried into captivity 200 years prior. Judah, the southern kingdom, is now being carried into captivity. So we have those three deportations to Babylon. The first one, uh, when Jehoiakim was king, we see about we read that in 2 Kings 24. Remember, he is the king that was uh, uh, paid tribute to Pharaoh Necho and then was carried away into bondage in Egypt and died there. And then we get to the second uh, deportation under Jehoiachin. And we remember with Jehoiachin that he was taken to Babylon. He was imprisoned there, but after uh, 37 years or whatever of being imprisoned, he's released and he's given that allowance and he's sitting at the king's table. So he's in a kingly type role. So the, again, the, the, the excitement, the good news of that is that that promise to David continues on. And then the third deportation comes under Zedekiah. You remember Zedekiah rebels against 
uh, Nebuchadnezzar, and he is uh, the Jerusalem is put under siege during this time, and that's when the city of Jerusalem falls. So this is the third and final deportation. Many of the people are taken out of the land at that point. The temple is destroyed. The king's house is destroyed. The city is razed. So that when we get to the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah comes back and. Boy, the city is in ruins. The gates are torn down. The walls are torn down. There's not much, not much left. So that's the context that we're in. Ezekiel was taken in that second deportation with Jehoiachin. Okay, so he is gone uh, before the city of Babylon or before the city of Jerusalem falls. Okay, um, Ezekiel, we see he has a lot of. Uh, uh, he gives us dates and places where he's at. So we see uh, in chapter 1, uh, we're assuming he's about 30 years old at this point. He's by the Chibar Canal, and he receives this vision. His ministry lasted for approximately 23 years. That's how long he was a prophet. Remember, Jeremiah was a prophet for, what, 50, something like that, 55 years, I think it was. So Ezekiel's time, not quite as long, but a, a very uh, interesting message, or, uh, ministry. The other thing, if we think about Ezekiel and Jeremiah, remember the Lord said to Jeremiah in chapter 1 that you will have this message that it builds up, or that it tears down, and then it builds up. Well, Ezekiel, his message has to do with the glory of God. And reminding Israel the glory of God is not contained to one place or locality. The glory of God extends over the whole of the earth. And so that is Ezekiel's primary message and ministry is concerning the sovereignty and glory of God. Now, we talk about how we can divide the book. I always think this is helpful, at least for me in my logical mind, is how is a book structured? Because that helps me, again, read it and kind of put myself in its place. So the way we're going to walk through it is dividing it by its visions. So each vision is set off by a date in, you know, uh, one, one, the 30th year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day of the month, he's giving us a date and time and place for the vision. And then when we get to chapter eight, we see the next one. So to me, that's the most logical way to kind of work our way through it. Another way would be to divide it into two, chapters one through 24, dealing with all of the uh, visions and prophecies regarding the judgment is, that is coming leading up to the destruction of Jerusalem. And then chapter 25 to the end of the book is all the, the, the details after the destruction of Jer- Jerusalem. So it kind of be judgment has fallen. Now what? What's next? Is there any hope left uh, now that the, the city is destroyed? But we are going to follow it kind of in this uh, date chronological kind of order as it's laid out in the book. Um, Ezekiel has a number of main themes. Again, these are kind of helpful to just summarize what, what we see in here. The first one, I think, that, that is probably the largest theme is that of the presence of the Lord or the idea is that the Lord, that Yahweh is not contained to a specific locality. Um, uh, we see, well, in chapter 1, we're gonna, we, you'll see this vision of the whirling wheels and the, temp, and the, the, uh, the throne. And it is, you read it, it's so bizarre, I can't even begin to picture in my mind what it is. Right, but that vision reoccurs at least I think two, three other times in the book where Ezekiel sees this in a specific place. Um, uh, Stephen Dempster said this about this vision. He said, "In the midst of a thunderstorm, he sees a moving vehicle carried by supernatural beings, each with four faces and four wings. Four sets of intersecting wheels make this vehicle move in any direction. The fiery wheel rims are covered with eyes." This astonishing vehicle approaches Ezekiel, and as it does, he sees that it carries a platform upon which a human figure is seated upon a throne. So as we see this vision happen in a number of places, the point is proving this is the presence of the Lord. Like, the Lord's presence is not contained to a specific location. Chapter 10, we're going to see the, this vision of the glory of God as it departs from the temple. Okay? Um, and, and the significance of that, again, remember when, whenever Israel walked in obedience to the Lord, they had the blessing of the Lord's presence dwelling amongst them. Uh, you remember when Solomon dedicated the temple and they offered 
countless sacrifices, and then the presence of the Lord fills the temple at that dedication, and it's so much so the priests cannot enter the house and minister. That was a blessing that Yahweh chose to make his name dwell in this place. Well, now what we're going to see in Ezekiel is that the sin of the people has so corrupted it, the presence of Yahweh leaves from that specific manifestation. It's not that they that he's not there, but they think that that's the reality. They think that, that uh, he does not see their sin, as we will see. Um, the other important aspect about this idea of the presence of the Lord is because Israel was so polytheistic in their, their idolatry, right? They're worshiping all kinds of gods, all kinds of other deities. The, the notion amongst the, the nations at that time was that, that there were gods that had specific domains, Right? So the gods of Babylon rule over Babylon, and the gods of uh, Assyria are in Assyria, and they don't really cross boundaries. Well, for these Jews who are in exile, they need to know that Yahweh rules over Babylon and over the Jews in exile and has not forsaken you. So that's another important theme that is brought out in, in, uh, in the book of Ezekiel. Um, the second theme is that of Ezekiel as a watchman. We're going to see this in chapter 3 and then in chapter 33. Uh, And the idea of the watchman is that he has a responsibility as a prophet that sees the coming judgment of the Lord to pronounce that, to to declare it, that that the judgment is coming. And the Lord will say, if you don't do this, if you don't proclaim to the people uh, that, that the sword of the Lord is coming, then their blood will be upon your hands. Um, and and I, think, I think as we're going to get to chapter 33, I think there's a notion that, that that kind of applies to the other nations as well. But Ezekiel is Israel's watchman. He is to uh, pronounce, uh, announce to the people that judgment is falling, and if they don't hear, even though he's faithfully proclaimed it, the blood is on their, their they're responsible for their rejection of that, of that word. Um, the third, I... Uh, uh, main theme is that the, the Lord will be glorified. Over 70 times in the book, we see this phrase used, or uh, an idea like it, that is something like this, that they or you, the, the other nations, may know that I am the Lord. Right? The Lord is acting for the sake of his name and for his purpose over and over and over. We see this uh, um, happen. I think about what the psalmist says when he says that our God is in the heavens, he does all that he pleases. Right? He does what he pleases for his name's sake. Okay? Um, the, the fourth theme would be judgment for sin. This is a, a constant theme through the prophets, right? Jeremiah has spent a lot of time in this. Ezekiel will spend a lot of time, especially as we get to chapter 16 and chapter 20, which are really just really sad chapters as Israel's sin is personified, uh, specifically through uh, the depiction of prostitutes, of whoredom. Um, and so through really graphic details, the Lord illustrates what's, what Israel's sin is, but then he also demonstrates and shows how he has been long-suffering and he has been patient and uh, he has um, been faithful to the covenant with them. And again, this I, as we think about how how the judgment for sin is falling, um, we see the Lord's heart for Israel, and we see his heart breaking over their sin. Remember, the prophets are giving us the commentary on all the historical events we've read about from Genesis, really, through kings. And so the prophets are helping us see this is how the Lord feels about their sin and their rebellion. Um, Then the final main theme would be that the Lord will do the work of restoration. So there's so much judgment and there is a, uh, it is full of sin, but yet the Lord will restore his people. He will be faithful to the nation of Israel. As we will see, Ezekiel really is going to emphasize the idea of the new covenant. Right? He's going to give them a new heart and a new spirit, and I will place my law upon you and cause you to walk in my way. So just as Jeremiah promised that, so Ezekiel promises that as well. And this is really important because, again, these people are in judgment. They are in exile, and they need to know this is not the final word. This is not the end of the story for them. Um, there are several different pictures of this happening in chapter 11. We will see the Lord promise to bring his people out of the places they have been scattered to. 
At the end of chapter 16, after this long indictment for sin, that promise is made again. Uh, In chapter 20, again, another long uh, story dealing with their sin. The Lord tells them he will be king over them. Chapter 34, there's a covenant of peace that will be established. And then chapters 36 and 37, the promise of the Spirit. Uh, and those are the passages we typically think of in, in uh, the context of the new covenant. Um, but bottom line is this, Israel is a mess and they are in judgment and exile for their sin, but there is a better day coming. There is a better covenant coming. There is a better king coming, an indwelling spirit and a new heart that has the law of God written on it. And all of this comes through Jesus Christ. Right? He is the fulfillment of all of these promises as he perfectly obeys the law. He will be the new and better Adam, the new and better Israel, doing what Israel failed to do. Uh, Jesus will come and do it perfectly, and then through his perfect life and death, will send the Spirit right, who indwells us, and he has established that new covenant. Okay? So that kind of gives us a, maybe a, a bird's-eye summary of some of the things that we're going to see. So we can kind of walk our way through the, vi- the book. And I have, I have like gone much more slowly in my own study over the last couple weeks, reading through the prophets and trying to outline them and understand them. And it's been a real blessing. I do think the one thing that helps is to try and read as much of the book in one sitting as possible. It's hard, but you can do it. And when you do, it helps see the themes continue to develop over and over. So if you have a day, <laughs> right, sit down and, and try and do that and, and try and uh, you can, I think you can follow some of the thoughts a little bit better, okay? So the first one, we're just going to follow this vision by vision. The first vision comes in 593 BC, and it runs from chapter 1 through chapter 7. And I've called this the ever-present, all-glorious Yahweh is bringing judgment on his people. So we see in chapters 1 through 3 his call, uh, and it happens through this vision, so we see like verse 4, as I look, behold, a stormy wind came out of the north and a great cloud with brightness around it, fire flashing forth continually, and in the midst of the fire, as it were, a gleaming metal, and from the midst of it came the likeness of four living creatures. As you read through this, the one thing that did stand out to me is all of the descriptions of the things around the throne and the glory. They're mind-boggling enough, much less what it, who, is, who is seated upon the throne. But then we get to chapter 2, and we see the Lord specifically uh, calling to him. Um, And he says, Son of man, I send you to the people of Israel, to nations of rebels who have rebelled against me. They and their fathers have transgressed against me to this very day. The descendants also are impudent and stubborn. I send you to them, and you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord God. Okay, so he's saying... This is the history of the, Israel, of, of the nation. From day one, they have been rebellious, they have been stubborn and hard-hearted, they have broken my law. And that's what, in chapter 2, his emphasis is really on the rebellious history of the nation. Uh, as we're, we'll see, when the Lord is indicting Israel for their sin, it's uh, they're not just what's happening right now, although he, he especially emphasizes that, but it's the whole history, Right? This is, this is for, for thousands of years of their rebelling against the Lord. And then he gets to chapter 3, and you see like verse 1, where he says, And he said to me, Son of man, eat whatever you find here. Eat this scroll and go speak to the house of Israel. And then look down at the end of chapter 2, or cha- uh, verse, verse 3, I mean. And then I ate it, and it was in my mouth as sweet as honey. And it made me think about, we didn't really touch on it last time, but in Jeremiah, you remember the passage in Jeremiah where Jeremiah takes the word of God and it's, he eats it, and what does he say? Uh, it was sweet to me, and it was the joy and delight of my heart, right? The, so those who, who know the Lord, and, and, and again, it, it, the, the word of God is a delight, and it is a joy. So even for Jeremiah and Ezekiel, who were delivering messages, messages of judgment, the word of God is sweet, and it is a joy and a delight to them. Uh, notice verses 6 and 7, there will be a refusal to listen to the word of the Lord. Um, and the Lord says that Ezekiel will need to be as stubborn in delivering the message as they are at, in rejecting it. And you see that in verse 18. Um, he'll talk about, I will make your head, your forehead hard, <laughs> right? Because you're going to go against people whose foreheads are hard. The other thing that I find really fascinating in this, or uh, that was verse eight, that I, uh, the hard forehead passage. 
Um, the other thing that I find really fascinating with this is the Lord says, I'm going to send you and they're going to reject it. But yet the Lord sends them anyways, right? That's grace. So whenever anybody looks at this, and o- this is often a, a, a statement you'll hear, the God of the Old Testament is just mean and he's unjust and he's brutal. No, he's not. He's faithful. He is just. That's why he brings judgment. But it's, it's uh, I mean, it's continued grace that he offers them opportunities to repent, as we will see. Uh, just as in, in Jeremiah, this happened several times. The Lord will say, if they will respond, I will relent of the da- disaster that I bring. But they won't. Their hearts are hardened against the Lord. Okay? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It is. Yeah. Good. Then we get to uh, the middle of chapter three, and we shift, and then we see that Ezekiel is the watchman. He is to declare the coming judgment on Jerusalem, and this vision comes to him seven days after the first one. And what the, again, the point of the watchman you see in verse 18 and verse 20 is that if he fails to speak the word of the Lord, blood is on his hands. Um, And then we see in verses 25 and 27, just to emphasize the point that uh, this is the the word of the Lord that is speaking through him, he's made mute. He cannot talk unless the Lord enables him to communicate. So, and it is interesting with both Jeremiah and with Ezekiel, they're going to suffer immensely. Uh, demonstrating uh, that they are the Lord's chosen instruments to deliver these messages, okay? Then we see in uh, chapter 4, he builds a miniature Jerusalem, which is under siege. So I'm envisioning a little... It says, take a brick and engrave on it. So I'm imagining it's, it's rep- or not imagining, it is representative of the city of Jerusalem. He says, build siege works up, up upon it. So maybe, you know, I'm envisioning like Lord of the Rings scaffolding. I don't know if that's exactly what it is, but that's what comes to my mind. Uh, the idea though is he's, he's representing what is going to come upon Jerusalem. And then he does, he's supposed to lay on his left side for 390 days. Just lay on your side for 390 days, symbolizing the punishment in years for the house of Israel. Okay, so this is how long they have, uh, uh, well, the house of Israel, remember, this is the, the northern, northern tribes. And then he's supposed to switch and lay on his right side for 40 days, representing the house of Judah. And these combined together to equal 430, which was the total number of years they were enslaved in Egypt. Okay, so he's representing uh, their punishment and their sin. In 4.15, you see that he's supposed to eat bread baked on cow's dung, drink water by measure, eat bread by weight, and all of this is picturing the, st- the terror, starvation, and deprivation that will come upon Jerusalem. Uh, so you think about um, a city that's under siege that doesn't have any supplies coming into it. There's, there, there's no food. They can't go out to their fields, Right. Uh, you're going to starve. And so he is supposed to, this would graphically picture it. And I think the idea too is this is demonstrated before other people, right? So the other Jews in Babylon would see this and know what's going on. And then we get to chapter five. Yeah. Picture that in the streets. I mean, is that the only form they had? Because they I don't know. That's a good question. Way to ask a question I don't have an answer to. I, I really don't know. We see like in chapter 20, Elders of Israel come to him, and so I, maybe that was at his house. I, I really don't know. He's by the Chibar Canal, wherever the Chibar Canal is. So I don't know. Sorry, I don't have an answer better for that. I'll just say it straight up. I don't have an answer. Facebook of exile Babylon. Uh, cow's dung, yeah, right? But it, it, the picture is driven home, right? Uh, chapter 5, the first four verses, you see this picture of Jerusalem being burned with fire. And then verses 5 through 8, you see why Jerusalem is suffering this judgment. And the Lord says, they have done more wickedness than the nations around them because they've abandoned Yahweh's statutes. And remember, going all the way back to Joshua, Israel was an instrument of divine judgment against nations that committed abominable practices. And now he says, they're worse than those nations were that you drove out. Right, so this is how bad things have gotten. 
we see verses 9 through 12, and this really struck me, uh, where Yahweh is saying, the judgment that I am bringing is unlike any judgment before or after. And what is described there, he says that fathers will eat their sons and sons will eat their fathers. He's describing cannibalism. Um, he's describing, he, he says that he will show no pity. He says death will come by pestilence, famine, sword, and scattering, right? This is a brutal judgment, right? This is a, a really, an, well, and by that, I don't mean unjust, but I mean, this is, the, this is awful, right? Like you're going to starve, you're going to eat one another, such to the Lord, the, the Lord would say, I have not brought judgment like this before, nor will I bring it again. It's serious, serious business. Verse 13, you see the judgment is the Lord's fury being vent upon them. His wrath will be satisfied and the nation will know the jealousy he has for them. Right? This is his people and he is, he is jealous for them and they have uh, uh, turned away from him. Chapter 6, we see judgment for idolatry. Look at verses 9 and 10. And the thing that we see with this is that the exile will fix their idolatry. One of the things that happens in the nation of Israel, they go into, into exile. When they come out of that, they're not an idolatrous nation again. Uh, and even think about up to Jesus' day. Is idolatry the, pro- the problem in Israel? No, it's not. It's, they've, become, they've, they've become too strict of adherence to the law that they've missed the point. But they're not idolatrous. So in many ways, this judgment fixes that problem. But as Ezekiel will say, what they really need is new hearts. Okay, look at verses 9 and 10, though. Um, The Lord says, Then those of you who escape will remember me among the nations where they are carried captive, how I have been broken over their whoring heart that is departed from me and over their eyes that go after whoring idols, and they will be loathsome in their own sight for the evils they have committed, for all their abominations, and they shall know that I am the Lord. I have not said in vain that I would do this evil to them. They're going to abhor them. They're going to grow to hate these, these idols, okay? Um, then we get to chapter 7, and we see this repeated phrase of the end is upon you or the day is near. Um, the, the, the point being is that the announcement of judgment is here. Is, is here. There's no longer a delay. It's coming. Verse 4, you see this phrase, now the end is upon you. Verse 5, disaster, behold it comes. Verse 7, your doom has come. Verse 8, I will pour out my wrath. Verse 9, I will punish you. Verse 9, then you will know I am the Lord who strikes. Look at verse 19, your silver and gold will not deliver you in the day of wrath. Verse 27, they shall know that I am the Lord. All right, again, that, that phrase, judgment's coming, but Israel and all the nations will uh, know that, that he is the Lord. The other thing I thought about this was interesting. If you remember back to when the Lord brought uh, Israel out of Egypt and, and delivered them through the Red Sea and all these miraculous things, you remember the testimony of Rahab? When she's like, oh, we've heard of your God. We've heard what he's done. And the Lord is saying, I will act on behalf of you, Israel, for the sake of my name. And I will deliver you through these mighty ways. And you will know, and all the nations will know that I am the Lord. Well, now it's like the reverse, right? Israel has sinned. They have forgotten who the Lord is. And so through judgment, they will know who the Lord is again, and all the nations. Because again, God's goal is to get glory for himself so that the knowledge of the Lord covers the earth as, covers wa- as the waters cover the sea, okay? So the Lord is making himself known in judgment on Israel. That leads us to chapter 8, and we see the second vision that he receives in 592 BC. And this time, uh, what we see is that Yahweh, and these are really short, pithy uh, titles I've given these sections, because I'm not short on words at all. But Yahweh is bringing judgment because of Israel's polluted worship, because of their immoral leaders, and because of their history of Rebellion. So in chapter 8, what happens is he is taken in a vision to Jerusalem, and he, is, he sees the temple, and he sees activities happening in that. And the, the idea in chapters 8 through 10 is that the presence of the Lord no longer resides in the temple because of their sin, and because of the abominations that they are committing. So verse 6, Yahweh asks Ezekiel, do you see what great abominations they are committing in the temple to drive Yahweh from his sanctuary? Uh, you see in verse 3, they have a seat 
on uh, an image that is sitting on the seat Yahweh should inhabit. So I'm, I'm assuming here, you, know, you think on the, the Ark of the Covenant, there was the mercy seat, these two cherubim over, over it. That's the place where Yahweh came and made his presence known. Now he's saying they put an idol there, right? So this is what's, what's happening. They're setting up idols in the temple of the living God. Verse 12, you see abominations that are committed by the elders of Israel. So these are the leaders. And then they make this, he, he points out in verse 12 of chapter 8, they don't think that the Lord sees their sin. They think because uh, there's been exile, because the people have been taken out of the land, they're scot-free. They, the Lord has forsaken them, right? You see in verse 16, they're worshiping the sun in the temple. And then we see in chapter 9 that judgment is pictured to come as a, an image which is very similar to um, the Passover, but in a sense the reverse of it, right? Here comes an angel who's going to mark those for judgment and execution, and then uh, it's pictured as the angel of death coming and killing those who, who uh, have the mark on them. Look at verses 4 and 5. Pass through the city through Jerusalem, put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations uh, that are committed in it. And to the others, he said, my hearing, pass through the city after them and strike. Your eye shall not spare and you shall show no pity. Okay? Uh, verse 10, the Lord does see. He will not have pity and judgment. He will drink, bring their deeds upon their own heads. And then we get to chapter 10 and we see this image of the whirling wheels and the cherub and the, uh, uh, this arrives again and what this should clue us into is again the glory of the lord the presence of the lord it is here okay um the lord is saying is showing through this that he even though his glory has departed he has not forsaken his people he is not overlooking their sin he's still bringing judgment on them then we get to chapter 11, and we see uh, an explanation of wicked counselors, prophets, and elders. So uh, there are, as we'll see, there are moral and ethical issues whenever Israel uh, is, breaks the covenant. Uh, there is, uh, people are hurt. So chapter 11, verse 2, uh, Ezekiel is to prophesy against wicked counselors. Um, their counsel was against what Yahweh had said. And you can even think back to I think it was in chapter 28 of Jeremiah. Remember the story of Hananiah, the false prophet? Uh, Jeremiah is wearing that yoke saying, submit yourselves to the yoke of Babylon. And Hananiah comes in and, oh no, I have another vision from the Lord. And the Lord has broken the yoke of Nebuchadnezzar. We're no longer going to be subject to them. And what happens to Hananiah? He's dead. Okay, So false, count, false counselors, false prophets, uh, prophesying and counseling against what Yahweh had said. So verse 9 of chapter 11, Israel, Judah will be given into the hands of foreigners. Verse 12, again, this idea that you shall know that I am the Lord um, through judgment, right? Because you have acted according to the rules of the nations. Uh, look at verse 16, where the Lord is saying, I have... I will preserve those whom I have scattered. So again, the judgment is not the final word. Um, and then look at verses 17 and 20, where the Lord says that he will restore Israel, that they will put away their idols and he will give them a new heart. So all of this, it, it, the Lord is so good and kind and gracious, right? That he denounces their sin, announces that judgment is coming, but then says, but I will restore you. I will, make, I will change you into the people that you need to be. Um, chapter 12, Ezekiel is to demonstrate the exile of Judah and Jerusalem, verses 1 through 7. And then we see an oracle starting in verse 8 about Zedekiah the king, Okay, because Zedekiah was the last the last king in Israel, the one that was the city fell under him. You also remember that he had his eyes gouged out uh, after his sons were killed, and, the, and then he goes and dies in Babylon. So that those verses eight through sixteen are are dealing with uh, with uh, Zedekiah. Um, look at chapter thirteen: prophesy against false prophets who speak from their own hearts. You see that in verse two; uh, they say things like, "Thus says the Lord." when the Lord did not send them, right? See that in verse 6 as well. 
Uh, and then verse 10, he says that they say, hey, there's peace when there, there is no peace. So these are false prophets. You see uh, verse 17, prophesy against the women who practice divination, who go down after souls. So they're trying to communicate with the dead, it seems. Um, and then we see uh, in chapter 14, some idolatrous elders come to Ezekiel uh, to hear from the Lord. And the message to these men in verse 6 is, repent and turn from your idols. Verse 8, the Lord says that his face is set against them. And then we have, look at verses 12 through 23, something that is, I think, very, it's reminiscent to Sodom and Gomorrah. You remember when uh, the Lord says, I'm going to bring judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. And the Lord says, but what about the righteous people? You know, uh, will you spare the city if there's 10? The Lord says, there's not 10. Um, only righteous law is left. So here the Lord says, if Daniel, Job, and Noah were alive, I would spare them. Or no, not, sorry, that's what he, he says, not even if these men, look at verse 14, even if these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, they would deliver but their own lives by the righteousness, by their righteousness, declares the Lord God. So even the presence of these righteous men will not stop the disaster that is coming upon the nation. Then in chapter 15, there's a picture of Yahweh's coming judgment as a total consuming fire. And the picture is that the inhabitants of Jerusalem are fuel for that fire. They're the wood that is going to kindle this fire. Then we get to chapter 16. And chapter 16 is a really uh, sad image. And so I want to kind of walk us through this. Um, Israel's history is told through the image of a despised child. Look at verse 5. Well, actually, I'm going to read the first four verses. Again, the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, make known to Jerusalem her abominations, and say, Thus says the Lord God to Jerusalem, Your origin and your birth are the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite, and your mother a Hittite. And as for your birth, on the day you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling cloths. No, I pitied you to do any of these things to you out of compassion for you, but you were cast out on the open field, for you were abhorred on the day that you were born. Okay, so picture the nation of Israel. You're supposed to see the nation of Israel personified as an infant that's been abandoned. Right, like just literally given birth to, just left to die in the wilderness. So in verse 6, the Lord takes compassion. Verse 7, he causes them to flourish. In verse 8, he covers their nakedness when they grow older and that they're, a, that they're at the age of love. And I think that the imagery we're supposed to get is, again, they're like naked, they're maturing, they're vulnerable to rape or abuse, and he's saying, I'm covering you, I'm protecting you. That's kind of the imagery that, that is uh, perhaps communicated here. Look at verses 9 through 13. The Lord took you and dressed you and adorned you, crowned you and fed you. And then he says in, in later in verse 14, the, the idea is that you flourished to become a beautiful royal, and you were so beautiful, your renown went throughout the nations. And again, think about the testimony of the nation of Israel. As they progress, they come out of Egypt and they go into the land and all the nations are saying, who is this God? Who is delivering you? you what kind of nation is this? All right, so they're flourishing and their renown is being known. But, verse 15, you trusted in your beauty instead of the Lord and played the whore to the other nations. And then he says, you took the good things from verses 16 on, 16 through 21, you took the good things that Yahweh gave you and gave them to other nations and gods. Even your children you gave over in sacrifice. Remember the sins of Manasseh, the king in Judah who is offering his children as sacrifices. Verse 22, you did not remember when you were naked, covered in blood, and that Yahweh had rescued you. You forgot that uh, redemption. Verses 23 through 29, he says, you multiplied your whorings, never being satisfied with just one lover. You had to have multiple lovers. And then verse 30, he says, how sick is your heart? You're a shameless prostitute. But then he goes on in verses 31 through 33, and he says, you're worse than a prostitute because you wouldn't even accept payment. Rather, you gave gifts to your lover. So they, they wouldn't even take money for their prostituting themselves. Rather, they paid those who they, had sold, who they were being uh, prostitutes for. So verses 35 through 41, the Lord says, you will be ravaged and mutilated by your lovers. 
and it's graphic language used to describe it. I think about the the language here, actually, uh, I was thinking about that scene at the end of Judges where the Levite cuts up his dead concubine and sends her to the parts of the land. Now, this is what the Lord is going to say is going to happen to the nation. Um, Verse 41, Yahweh will make you stop being a prostitute. Verse 42, he will satisfy his wrath upon them. Um, verses 44 through 48, he's saying that Israel is the worst in the family tree, right? So if you think of this child grown into a woman and they're part of the, the family, he's saying you're the worst part of it. You're the black sheep. Verse 47, you're worse than Samaria. Samaria was the capital of Israel, the northern kingdom that, remember, from their inception was idolatrous. He says you're worse than them. And then verse 48, you're worse than Sodom, right? If that doesn't put a uh, picture as to where they are, it's pretty dark. Uh, You were once proud, and then verses 56 through 57, you were once proud, Sodom being a byword in your own mouth, like you'd look and say, we're not like Sodom. Now he says, actually, I've uncovered your nakedness. I've uncovered your sin, and you're worse than they are. So he says, you will receive judgment for your sin, verse 58, but look at the last few verses starting in verse 59. For thus says the Lord God, I will deal with you as, I ha- as you have done, you who have despised the oath and breaking the covenant. Yet I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth, and I will establish for you an everlasting covenant. Then you will remember your ways and be ashamed when you take your sisters, both your elder and your younger, and I give them to you as daughters, but not on account of the covenant with you. I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall know that I am the Lord that you may remember and be confounded and never open your mouth again because of your shame when I atone for you for all that you have done, declares the Lord. What a fantastic (laughs) promise in an ending, right? And I mean, can you have a more graphic description than that? Like, he's saying you're worse than a prostitute because you won't even take money, rather you pay others for it, right? And you're going to be mutilated, you're going to be... violated by all of your lovers, but yet all of your sins I will atone for. That's, that's good news, okay? Then we get to chapter 17, and we see this parable of two eagles and a vine. And we are not going to get all the way through the book, by the way, tonight, if you haven't noticed. We're in chapter 17, we have 48 chapters <laughs> in the book. So don't worry if you're thinking like, it's quarter till and he's not even halfway through the book yet. I'm not going to do that to you. Uh, so we see in ch- this, this, this parable is dealing with Zedekiah, again, the king, and his faithlessness. Uh, it's picturing his rebellion against Babylon. There's this imagery of an eagle and a cedar tree, and they are meant to picture Zedekiah rebelling against the king of Babylon, being plucked off and being carried off into captivity. That's the, the imagery that, is, that we're supposed to see. Um, notice in verse 19, because uh, again, the, 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 there is that promise, and Jeremiah made this. If you submit to the yoke of Nebuchadnezzar, you won't go through this judgment. But yet, Zedekiah and many of the others, oh no, we're going to rebel. We're going to make Israel great again. Uh, it's kind of their idea. didn't work so well. But in verse 19, uh, by despising this, the Lord says, As I live, surely it is my oath that he despised and my covenant that he broke. I will return it upon his head. So in breaking that covenant, uh, with Nebuchadnezzar, he says he's actually broken the covenant with Yahweh. And then notice verses 22 through 24, the Lord will make Israel to flourish again. Uh, the Lord says, I myself will take a sprig from the lofty top of the cedar and will set it out. I will break off from the topmost of its young twigs, a tender one, and I myself will plant it on a high and lofty mountain. And then he's going to go and say, it's going to grow into a full tree. All the birds will come and rest in it. And this is imagery that is used time and time again in the prophets. And maybe, I don't know, we'll see, we might spend just one week looking at tree imagery and vine imagery because over and over, that's what Israel is pictured as and that's what uh, they're going to flourish into a tree, but the Lord will cause them. Isaiah 6, 9, and 11 really drive this, drive this home. It's not how many times Jesus in the right. trees and vines and Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's... it's uh, it's, it's a it's a beautiful theme that you actually see all the way through the through scripture this this imagery of of a tree and a vine. 
Then we get to chapter 18. The Lord rejects another proverb in Israel. And the proverb is this, that the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. Common vernacular for the day. Didn't, doesn't make any sense to me because uh, we don't, don't speak like that. Uh, here's a helpful uh, analysis of it from Paul House. He said, The prophet first reflects on a proverb found in Jeremiah 31, 29 through 30 that means the children are suffering for the sins of their parents. Ezekiel's people believed that they had done nothing to deserve their fate. All sin has corporate consequences, and it is possible to suffer for the sins of others, but these are not the only possibilities. The people refused to consider that the sins enumerated in Ezekiel 8-17 through might cause divine punishment. After all, they think God is absent, not present. Okay, so, so they don't understand why this judgment and this sin has fallen upon them, and they, they think that, that there's nothing wrong with them. So uh, to correct this wrong thinking, you see in verse 20, the Lord says that each of them will die for their own iniquities right? They are unrighteous and they are getting their just desserts, so to speak, right? They have brought this, this sin upon themselves. And then verse 19, we see a lament. And I, what, I, what I think we see here are a few things. In verse 1, you see Israel is the mother. She's the lioness. I think in verse 4, it's talking about the nations heard about him. He was caught in their pit and they brought him with hooks to the land of Egypt. I think this is referencing Jehoiakim, Right, the king that was carried down to Egypt by Pharaoh Necho. And then we see in verse 8, nations are set against Israel. And then verse 9, I think this is, the, this is uh, Jehoiachin, right? With hooks, they put him in a cage and brought him to the king of Babylon. They brought him into custody that his voice should no more be heard on the mountains of Israel. And then verse 10, this description of Israel is like a vine in a vineyard. But then in verses 12 and 13, now it has been plucked up and planted in the wilderness. And that's a whole uh, image that is used about the nation of Israel over and over again. They are a vine that the Lord says he planted, but now they're trampled and they're burned down. They're good for nothing. Um, so this is using that same imagery. And then let's, um, let's, we'll finish up with this last section, verses t- or chapters 20 through up to 24, and that'll be a, a pretty good stopping spot for us, actually, for until next time. But chapters 20 through 23, I've called Israel's history of rebellion, their current sinful practices, and their adultery. So what happens here is, is we see, this is a new vision, chapter 20, verse 1, in the seventh year, in the fifth month, on the tenth day of the month, certain of the elders of Israel came to inquire of the Lord and sat before me, and the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, speak to the elders of Israel and say to them, thus says the Lord God, Is it to inquire of me that you come? As I live, declares the Lord God, I will not be inquired of by you. Okay, so what he's going to say is, because of your idolatry, uh, I will not uh, speak with you. And then he goes on to detail the history of the nation of Israel. So you see in verses 5 through 9, he's describing their rebellion in Egypt. And then you get down to verses 10 through 17, and he describes their rebellion in the wilderness. Because you remember, as soon as they come out of Egypt, they start rebelling right away, and then they rebelled in the wilderness by not going into the land as they should have. And then we see uh, verses 18 through 26, the rebellion by the second generation. So he says to them, and this was the faithful generation, you didn't even perfectly obey my statutes and my commands. And then we get to verses 27 to 32, and he's talking about rebellion in the land with idolatry. So now the, the history is they're, they're inhabiting the land, uh, probably during the reigns of the kings and things like that, or during the judges, that whole period, uh, but they immediately fall into idolatry, okay? Um, and in each of these scenes, if you notice in verse 9, in verse 14, and in verse 22, uh, what do you see? the Lord withholding his judgment that his name might not be profaned among the nations, right? Uh, This is, again, an important theme is the Lord is acting, or here in this case, delaying judgment for the sake of his name. So now what what the Lord is saying is you are now receiving the judgment, right? The cup of wrath has been filled up, so to speak. But then you get down to verses 33, 
through 44, and we see again that judgment is not the last word, so the Lord will restore them. And this judgment will serve to cleanse and to refine and to purify the people. And that's what happens if you start in 20, verse 45, all the way through chapter 21, uh, you see this coming judgment to cleanse and purify. So in chapter 21, Israel does, or not Israel, Ezekiel wields a prophetic sword and he starts slicing and the Lord tells him you cut this way and then you cut this way, which is to picture the Lord's sword of judgment that is coming upon the city. So you see that like in verse three, that the Lord is against them. And then in verse five, he says that it is this, uh, all flesh shall know that I am the Lord. I have drawn my sword from its sheep from its sheath, it shall not be sheathed again. Okay, so it's a, a sword of judgment. Then chapter 22, you see this further indictment demonstrating the righteousness of the Lord's judgment. Uh, there, there's reasons this is falling upon them. So verse two, Jerusalem is a bloody city. Verse four, they are defiled by their idols. Verse six, their rulers are unjust. Verse seven, they extort and wrong one another. So they're taking advantage of one another. Verse eight, they've despised the holy things. So um, you think about the, the worship in the temple polluted, even going back to uh, what we saw in chapter 10, where he's talking about, or is in chapter eight, there's now an image on the seat of Yahweh. Right, so they've despised the holy things. Verses 9 through 11, there's sexual deviance among the people. Uh, verse 12, taking of bribes is accepted and normalized. Verse 12, they've forgotten the Lord. Go down to verse 23, you see the failure of the priests. Uh, down through verse 28, they've desecrated the worship of Yahweh. Uh, verse 26, you see, he, he says that the priests have not made that distinction between the holy and the common, the clean and the unclean. And we go all the way back to Leviticus and we go to Numbers and the order of the camp. Israel had a certain function, uh, a certain way they were to live in order to know the blessing of Yahweh's presence because nothing unclean could come into the contact of something that was holy, otherwise it would defile it. And Yahweh could not live or dwell in the presence of uncleanness, okay? So the, the religious leaders, they, it was their responsibility to make sure things were, were, or, were running properly in that way, right? Verses 27 through 28, prophets have not condemned injustices by rulers. Instead, they've prophesied in such a way as to encourage their sin, right? So rather than calling it out as they should have, you know, like in Elijah or Elisha, they've actually encouraged them them in it. Uh, verse 29, the people oppress the poor and the needy and the sojourner. And then we get to chapter 23 and we see another um, personification like we had in chapter 16. And here, Israel and Judah are personified as these two sisters, Ahola and Aholibah, however you want to say that. And what, he, what the story is with these is that these were two uh, they were prostitutes, and they were prostitutes from a young age in Egypt. And again, this is a very similar picture to what we saw in chapter 16. That Israel has prostituted themselves out. Just uh, the, look at, uh, well, actually go to look at verse 45, because this, this is the difference in this, okay? Because he, he describes it in very similar terms, as you see in chapter 16. But the difference here is that the Lord applies the law to their situation. So you see in verse 45, righteous men will pass judgment. They will be stoned to death, verse 46, which is the punishment for adultery. And then verse 49, they shall bear the penalty. So I think the whole point of this section culminating at, at the judgment is that Israel is entering into judgment for forsaking the law and breaking the covenant. And by putting Israel, personifying Israel as these two uh, sisters who have committed adultery and prostituted themselves out and then holding up the judgment of the law and executing it as the law said, he's demonstrating again as a nation, you've broke the covenant, okay? Um, we'll stop there.